some of Colorado's largest employers offer a matching gift or workplace giving promotion to their employees. Using a program like this, you can often double your giving impact. Companies like IBM, Google, United Health Group, Excel Energy, and Chevron top the list for gifts to CPR. See if your company matches on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. If I say Title IX, you might picture a locker room, whether male and female college athletes have commensurate facilities and equipment. But a landmark case in Boulder in the early 2000s helped expand the federal law to protect women from sexual assault on campus. A culture of impunity at CU Boulder meant football players got away with rape and other crimes. Well, 20 years later, a private investigator on the case has written a book. Tell Me Everything by Erica Krauss dwells somewhere between true crime and memoir. That's because it's also an account of Krauss's own experience with sexual abuse, which began when she was four and lasted throughout her childhood. Tell Me Everything, while sometimes painful to read, is also a fascinating study of human behavior and resilience. Erica, welcome to Turn the Page, our reading circle. Thank you so much for having me. We are joined by an audience of readers gathered at LitFest in Denver, and a note that this conversation includes frank discussion of sexual violence. Uh, you became a private investigator after a chance encounter, more on that in a moment, but you were quickly assigned to this landmark sexual assault case involving Title IX. Uh, help us understand a bit more why it was such a watershed. Well, at that point, Title IX hadn't really been used in this way. It had only been used for like jerseys and facilities and um, whether people were getting the same amount of money in their sports, if, whether they be female or male. It was not at all associated with sexual assault when we began this case. So this was the very first Title IX sexual assault case in history. And part of the battle was just proving that we could use Title IX in this way. What did you have to prove under Title IX? We had to prove a culture of violence, a culture of sexual violence and discrimination and harassment against women um, in the sports world. That meant, you know, if athletes were harassing women, if they were sexually assaulting women. And the reason this fell under Title IX is that many college athletes are funded through scholarship and the university themselves is funded by the federal government. So that's why it, it fell under um, a civil rights initiative. And a federal law in particular. Was the argument that men did not face that kind of culture, that kind of uh, threat, and that because women did, that was unequal? Is that an okay way to put it? That was part of it. Also another part of it was that women were, and I'm just quoting one of the, a DA here, but women were seen to be used as bait to bring college athletes here, sexual bait to um, bring college athletes to the school and that put them in situations of sexual violence. And I don't mean at all to imply that men aren't victims of sexual assault, because they certainly are. You became a private investigator, as I said, after a chance encounter. The first line of your book is, 
It was because of my face. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, you have that face too, right? <laughs> what face? Tell me. It's the tell me face. It's the tell me everything face. It, it really, I mean, I'm not saying that you look innocuous. You don't. You, you have wonderful glasses. But, um, but <laughs> what I'm trying to say is that if you have a certain kind of face, you look like everyone's third grade best friend. You know, you look like someone someone used to know, someone used to be comfortable with. People tend to open up to you more, and sometimes strangers will do it. Uh, that happened to me really my whole life. Your whole life, strangers would come up to you, and you write that they would tell you deeply personal things without knowing a lick about you. Inappropriate things, too, especially when I was a kid. I'd be like, I don't know what this means that you're telling me, but they would still do it, yeah. And you had this interaction with an attorney who, I guess, confided in you, and this is how you become a private investigator, a chance encounter at a bookstore. Yeah, he, he did what people tend to do, which is, you know, started telling me personal things, and then he got very upset because he's, he's a very private person. I didn't know that at the time, so he's telling me all this stuff, and then he, he was like, what's happening to me? And I said, don't worry, you know, this happens to me all the time, and he said, it doesn't happen to me. And then he, like many astute businessmen, saw a way to use this in his practice, and he hired me on the spot as a PI. Wow. As you say, because of your face. <laughs> so he thought about this. He thought, this is someone people open up to. I can use that. Right. Do you have to be licensed in Colorado to be a private investigator? Now you do, but back then you didn't. So I just jumped in as a rookie. I had no idea what I was doing. There aren't really books that are accurate about being a PI. There are lots of fiction books where, you know, apparently you're supposed to go around looking for matchbooks and whatever Sherlock Holmes did, but um, <laughs> that's, that's not really what the, the job is. So I had to learn the job on, on the go. What is the job? It's really doing what you're doing right now. It's talking to people, it's getting them to open up, it's getting them to feel comfortable. Um, the only difference is I did it with a lot of alcohol and a lot of food and I just throw these things at someone and they would, it was a, it was a tool. Is it ethical to give people alcohol? <laughs> And, and ex, you know, expect them to open up? Is that an ethical behavior? No. And the job, <laughs> the job is not really an ethical job. And it's never been considered to be an ethical job, really. I mean, if you read books about it, um, PIs usually traverse that line between what you're doing for the good of a cause and what you're doing, you know, all the ethical violations that you're committing to do it. And who were you trying to get to open up? It was across the whole range. So I talked to uh, people who I thought were witnesses to the initial assault, and then it became bigger. The case started growing as more and more people started coming forward and saying, well, this happened to me too. And I say coming forward, we had to do a lot of convincing for that. So I would talk to witnesses, I'd talk to sometimes sexual assault victims, I talked to uh, sex workers, because the university hired sex workers to um, entice the recruits to come to the school. I talked to players. Uh, I... Oh, I'm pausing you there. <laughs> why? <laughs> why, oh why? <laughs> the school hired sex workers as lures to recruits? 
I, you know, I shouldn't say the school did it. I should say that individuals who worked for the school did it because we had trouble tying that all the way up the chain to the coaches. But yeah, recruiters, uh, one recruiter in particular underwent a grand jury over this and hired sex workers. Uh, he said he only hired them for himself, but one of the, our witnesses, uh, she was a madam, and she provided a lot of sex workers for recruits. And I think it's really important to remember that a lot of these recruits were 16 and 17 years old. Now, you will hear me say, see you Boulder, and I will say names associated with the event. Uh, I'm not going to be naming victims, but the point is, I'm being specific. You are not in the book. In fact, most of the names have been changed. You do say this takes place, I think you might even invoke the Flatirons, so we know that it's in the Boulder area. Why are you vague about this in the book? So there are some people I'm vague about because, you know, many, many, many people were involved in this case, and some of them were innocent, and some of them were, were survivors, and some of them were guilty, and they were abusers. And of course, there's the school who, in my view, perpetuated everything. So, but I had to keep everybody nameless, except for two, I think I named two public figures, like Neil Gorsuch and Ken Salazar. Um, but other than that, everybody else who was involved in the case has an alias because I didn't want to inadvertently out someone. When I was a PI, if I got a name, I would inevitably get five more names from that one name because that's how we interact. We're in association with each other. Oh, so revealing one name is potentially revealing ten. Exactly. And maybe one of those ten wouldn't mind, but the other nine would very much. And I wouldn't want to compromise their privacy in any way. When you began writing this book, did you know that it would include your own story of childhood sexual abuse? I tried to avoid it. I did not want to write about myself at all. I'm a fiction writer. I don't write about myself. I, I don't usually even talk about this stuff, even with close friends. But then I, as I was writing and I was describing what these incredible people went through, everything they risked, they risked their safety, they risked their futures, they risked their privacy, their education, certainly, um, to come forward. And I was thinking, well, okay, I'm going to write about them. What would give me any credence to write about them if I'm not willing to have the courage to write about myself? That I felt like for me to have the integrity to tell this story, I needed to also explain why this story was personal to me and why I cared about it so much. You don't name your abuser. He's called X in the book. Tell us about that decision. I went back and forth with that, you know. I, I really, again, I have that like kind of whistleblower personality, so I really want to call everyone out. Um, but, you know, I thought about it a lot, and, and one of the things that came down to was, this is my book about my life, this is my memoir, and do I really want him named in it? I don't think he deserves a name. He's living? Yes. Yeah. He doesn't deserve that space in your story. That was part of it. Yeah. And another thing is that, you know, my story isn't, sadly, it's not unique. I mean, if I look around, even in this room, you know, one third of the women here have some kind of story that's similar. So naming him X in some ways felt truer because he could be anybody. Not you, not you. <laughs> but like, you know, he, and no one here. But um, he could be, a, <laughs> he could be a lot of different people. So, uh, 
you know, to isolate and to even to give him a name felt like it would make him a little too specific. Although, of course, for me, he was incredibly specific. Do you hope he reads the book? And this is my last question about him. I don't know. I don't know. I don't. I have no idea how to answer that. Hmm. I, I didn't. You know, I, I wrote it for me, and I wrote it for people who. I, I wrote it for everyone who wants to read it, really. But I wrote it also for, um, particularly for people who might need to read it for whatever reason of their own. He doesn't figure into that. Well, I'd like to have you read a passage from the book. It's a window both into your childhood, but also a window into your talent as a writer. Thank you for saying that, so nice. Okay, um, ever since I was four, when I got too angry or overwhelmed, I became disoriented with whirling, not in my head, but in the center of my chest, right where my heart should be. The feeling started soon after X targeted me, and it never went away, although I could ignore it most of the time. Throughout my childhood, the whirling increased with any strong feeling, angry or sad or scared, when my mother talked to me, when I went outside, when I was stuck inside, evenings and nighttimes when I was completely trapped. The eddying churned my insides, made me feel like my skin would split and I would spill out. It sometimes accelerated into a downhill, runaway feeling, like I couldn't get my legs under me, the sensation of running and contorting and falling. I couldn't figure out what to call it, this feeling, until I visited my friend's house when I was about five. In her powder pink bedroom, she had a glass cage with a fuzzy gray pet rat inside, hunched over as if ashamed. It climbed onto a wheel using those strange fleshy feet that looked like four-fingered hands. The rat began running on the wheel until its fur streaked in long lines, tail high, the wheel whirring and slowing. The rat ran nowhere, tripping, gaining ground, and then losing it, gaining, losing, eyes fixed. The erratic pace of the wheel exactly matched the pace of the spinning inside me. I recognized it with my body. That was what I felt inside my chest, a rat running on a wheel until it lost its legs. My rage had a face and a furry body full of dirty things I would later learn to fear. Parasites, bacteria, viruses, excrement. These things were inside me, and so was that rat. Do you still have that feeling? No. Oh, no. Well, how do you think you got rid of it? R writing the book. <laughs> no, I, I'm serious. Like, I, I have this um, theory about when we write about a traumatic or difficult experience, you know, before we write about it, that experience, whenever we think of it or we, we're reminded of it, it, it exists in a certain place in our mind. But once we write about it, the experience of writing about it sort of takes precedence over the experience itself. We still have that experience, mm. but the fresher experience is the experience of working it out, of putting into words, to giving voice to the silence that we've been holding. You know, maybe the original experience is a passive, traumatic experience, but the writing is an active experience. You have agency. You can do something about it, and you can act in a positive way to make art out of something terrible, frankly. So, um, so for me, that was what you know. One of the things that did it. Also, the case really was when that that feeling really, really died. There was a culture of silence in your childhood home, and, and frankly, even in your family today just as there was a culture of silence and permissiveness at the University of Colorado. I mean, as a kid, you tried to speak up to your family about X abusing you. 
and it was largely swept under the rug. Is it too facile to suggest then that the Title IX case for you was about breaking a lifelong culture of silence? Oh yeah, definitely. And that's part of why- Definitely it is that case. It's not too facile to suggest that. <laughs> it's definitely not too facile okay. at all. It definitely, that's what it was for me. It was the first time when I decided again to act instead of just passively, you know, react. The central event in this book is a party in Boulder where there is a gang rape. Mm -hmm. And many of the women who came forward, uh, particularly around this party, who were sexually assaulted, faced retribution from the university, from the university's supporters, what forms did that backlash take? In some ways, the worst was from the football fans who said they were ruining football. They were ruining their sport. So some of them received death threats um, for coming forward. Uh, also, there was a lot of fear just walking around campus. One of the plaintiffs asked to attend college anonymously or you know under an alias so she wouldn't face retribution and the university refused so she ended up dropping out and a lot of the people who who experienced sexual violence at the hands of these players they were so afraid they either didn't come forward or they um, dropped out of school and again part of your job as a private investigator is to cajole the story out of some of these folks despite the enormous consequences of them speaking up at all. Right, right. It, it brought me a lot of um, mixed feelings because I believed in the case. I believed in what we were doing. I thought we could create change. On the other hand, were, were individuals going to be sacrificed to that change? I, I didn't know. And I felt responsible for everything that happened. On the subject of indignities that survivors face, you write that they often have to pay for their own rape kits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's um, it's not covered under the law, you know. And another indignity um, was I don't know if we're jumping the gun here talking about this, but when for a while the case was thrown out of court, and when it was thrown out of court, the plaintiff was ordered to pay all the university's legal bills. So not only did they at that point lose the case for a while, but they were suddenly responsible for you know, many millions of dollars at a very young age. I'm fascinated by the techniques you developed as a PI, um, I think because I'm an interviewer. And so I want to spend a little time exploring that. First of all, you write, I learned to split witnesses into two types, yes and no. Explain that. So if I were to ask you a question, and I thought you were a no witness, okay. I would say something like, uh, so you don't think the university's at fault for this? And you'd say no, because that would be your habit. You'd say no, and then you'd have to back up your no. And then I'd get some really good information from whatever you had to say, right? But if you were a yes witness, that would mean that you were more accommodating, you know? So I'd say, and I'd nod a lot, and I'd say, so you think the university's responsible for the situation and you'd say yes I do and 
and then you'd have to back up your, your yes. So you have to sort of cue it to the response you, you really are looking for. Oh, how do you determine if someone's a yes or a no person? They tell you right away. They tell you, they, you know, no, they'll, like, I mean, one conversation, you know, he picked up the phone, I said, will you talk to me? He said, nope, 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 nope. And then I knew. <laughs> We have so, a no witness. Yeah, I say so, and then I went from there to no. So you can't talk to me. You're not allowed to talk to me. And he'd say, I, I'm allowed to talk to you. You know, no, I'm not. No, you're wrong. You know. So then you just you just move it that way. Oh. <laughs> you're gonna do that now, aren't you? No, uh, <laughs> no, 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 no. You also learn to pick up on subtle verbal and facial cues. Yeah. Give me an example in that arena. So, you know, it can be anything from a little micro-expression. Uh, somebody says, oh yeah, I like them, and they, maybe their face kind of twitches up like that, and you say, oh, you don't like them. Mm. And they say, no, I don't like them, and that's why, you know. Um, or you, you're just always looking for internal conflict, so their body would display internal conflict. if they you know, nod their head when they're saying no, or they shake their head when they're saying yes. Things like that are pretty simple. But then there's also another thing that was, I found really interesting, which is that um, when you talk about somebody, it's called the chameleon effect. You take on their face, you take on their expressions, you take on their voice a little bit. So you actually imitate people that you're talking about as you talk about them. And um, it's a way you'll, you'll often see people do it when they're talking about like a spouse or like a partner and they'll suddenly sort of embody them a little bit. Oh, interesting. Yeah. You take on the persona of the person you're talking about. Right. You also write that sometimes someone might start a sentence or maybe give you a name not intending to and they would give you the first syllable or the first letter. Sometimes they just make a little motion with their mouth. You know, Towards like, an S like, or something. Yeah, or a W is really easy to see. Um, I could guess a lot from a W. <laughs> um, or, you know, and sometimes they, were, they say, I, well, I don't want to say who that is, you know. Um, but they'd sort of look like a coach when they said it, you know, so particular. So I'd study, oh. I'd study these people's body language and on, you know, film or whatever to see how they talked in their posture and their body language to see if I could sometimes guess. And if I could guess... Then, then people feel like, oh my God, she's reading my mind, and then they feel like they can't hide, and then they just tell you anything. Yeah. What is it to be Erica Krause's friend? <laughs> no one drinks around me anymore. They refuse. Yeah, an encounter at a cocktail party. <laughs> Uh, no, it's, it, I, I want to stress, though, <laughs> that you could do this. Anyone can do this. Uh -huh. It's stuff that we all do. We're socialized to do it. You just have to pay attention, and, and it's all right there. These abilities, you write, don't come from being smart or good or even generally observant. They come from being broken. Right. Whoa. You just said any of us could do this, so I could, maybe we're all broken. Well, it's a room full of writers, so odds are... <laughs> Why would being broken make you good at reading subtle cues in people? So it's more a measure of your attention. Like, what are you paying attention? Most, most people who are really safe and secure in life and they walk around and they're really happy, 
they're not necessarily paying attention to danger, signs of, of conflict, signs of uh, peril. But if you have a background of tragedy, abuse, um, problems, you're kind of always looking. You're always kind of looking for something. You know, where, where's it going to come from? And that makes you more acutely aware of your environment. It can make you hypervigilant. I'm not saying it's healthy. Is you know, is <laughs> is the truth of it, right? But it can sort of give you an extra set of skills. This really important Title IX case, it ended up settling. Why and what was the result of that settlement for the individual women, and for the campus climate? So first it was thrown out, right? Yeah. And then it went to uh, the 10th Circuit and a panel of judges overturned that decision to um, throw the case out and they said now it has to be heard. Now if a Title IX case is heard in the court, even if the plaintiff is awarded $1, just $1 in damages, then the defendant has to pay all of their legal fees. So the stakes really went up after we knew, we all knew that the case was going to go to court and after the university knew that they were going to have to go to trial. And from there they were more motivated to settle. So they did, they, um, they settled the case and the plaintiffs together were awarded $2,850,000. Uh, $2.5 million went to one plaintiff and $350,000 went to the other plaintiff. But in addition, the university was ordered to make very wide changes to their recruiting rules and had to appoint a then kind of not very common position of Title IX coordinator. Now most schools have them, many schools have yeah. them, um, but back then it wasn't really a thing. And also there were changes across the board because this became a precedent. So other schools started making changes. The NCAA changed their recruiting rules. There were changes across the board and more people started coming forward because this case had been won and now they could hold people accountable under Title IX. Now when you go forward as a, yay, right? <laughs> and when you go forward as a survivor of a crime and you go to the DA's office, that DA has control over whether or not that case is tried. They can say, no, I'm a football fan, and I don't want to do this because of political reasons. Or they can have any reason in the world not to take the case. But when you have this Title IX sort of um, mode of, of suing, then it's a civil rights case, and it opens a whole other avenue for getting accountability for a crime, whereas you're, you're not as under the control of the DA's office. It is less up to the discretion of a sole person, I hear you saying. Yeah. And another thing that happened that was amazing was that it was a change in university culture. Before then, universities were not really considered to be accountable for the safety of their students. It was, it was almost like, well, you made it here. If you can make it here, you can make it anywhere, right? Be good. Don't get into trouble. Good luck to you. But now, under Title IX, universities are responsible for the safety of their students, and it puts them in a role of accountability. And that meant they were, many universities were more proactive in installing lights and regulating recruiting and um, making sure that things were above board and safe for all the students. Do you wish it had gone to trial? Well, the drama queen in me, certainly. <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah. I really wanted to see, like, overruled, and I wanted to see it in, in real life. Um, but, you know, really what matters in the end is that everyone's safer. Do you think that the women in the case got justice? I can't speak for them. You know, I do know that they went through hell. And I do know that there were many people who were, who were in the case who, as witnesses, they did not want to be plaintiffs in the case, who, who got nothing uh, but, you know, threats. So I, I can't speak to whether or not they got justice. I can only say that change was made, and I think that was the point. And I think a lot of the people who were involved with the case, that was their primary goal. They risked a lot to make change, and they succeeded. Rebecca Arno of Aurora asks, has the release of the book cracked open your relationship with your family or made it more difficult, if that's even possible? Rebecca says. <laughs> um, well, I, you know, I'm not in contact there, so it's, you know, it, I think things are still the same. There's a writer named Melissa Phoebos, and I remember her saying the way people act towards you before you write the book is about the same as the way they act towards you after you write the book. So that's kind of what you can expect from them, you know? So if someone kind of ignores you before, they're more likely to even ignore you after. Um, or if they're really aggressive to you before, they're likely to be aggressive afterward. So Is that a surprise to you? It is a little bit. Yeah, me too. But then I remind myself, so few people read. <laughs> do, people, do people even read it, you know? So, um, yeah. I don't mean to depress anybody <laughs> in the room. And it's, it's your life we're talking about, so it seems strange for me to invoke the notion of a spoiler, but in, in the book, there is an encounter uh, in this time with your mother, and I'll, I'll leave it at that. Um, there, there are also some very positive milestones that you explore in this book, including, at the time, a budding relationship that results in a marriage. Right. Um, lest people think that this is all, you know, gloom and doom. <laughs> yeah. It's actually really funny. I mean, <laughs> it's strange to say that about a book about sexual violence, but the case was so ridiculous. I mean just some of the things that happened. I mean, the university president, when, when being told that the C word was, was used against one of the survivors, she said, well, that could be viewed as a term of endearment. Yeah. <laughs> just really ridiculous stuff like that. It, so the case itself provided all this comic relief um, in a way, which you would never ever think of a sexual assault case as <laughs> doing. Helen Carpenter of Denver uh, notes that Tell Me Everything, your book, has a few beautiful pages and paragraphs about Colorado weather. Uh, and of course, in Boulder, against the flat irons and the foothills, you feel that so closely. Uh, Helen asks, are you planning on writing more stories where nature is a more prominent character or part of the story? Thank you, Helen. Um, Helen, I just want to tell you, I really kind of suck at writing about nature and setting. It's not a strength of mine, and it's something I've had to deliberately work on. I've had to 
expressly work on setting for this, but I felt like the if I'm going to talk about a culture, if I'm going to talk about a university culture, a, a state culture, a sport culture, you have to also build that world. And I found a lot of parallels. I mean, there were a lot of fires at that time. There are fires now. <laughs> there. Um, there were a lot of, you know, natural disasters that were happening that sort of mimicked the in, my internal natural disasters as well. So I'm going to still try, Helen. That's, that's but that's just between you and me, Helen. Uh-huh. <laughs> Here's a remarkable comment. This is from Jacqueline St. Joan in Denver. Uh, she has a comment based on her own experience as one of the commissioners appointed 20 years ago by the CU Regents to investigate and hold hearings on these incidents of violence against women through the football program, uh, quoting her. So I learn about this, but so many people never learned in a coherent way just what went on within the football recruiting program and the money that was at stake due to the team's symbolic meaning to the alumni. Now, Jacqueline says, thanks to Erica, there's a written record that people want to read because of her sensitivity way with words that clarifies the shame of all that occurred. Mm, Thank you, that's so nice. There was a lot of money involved. Boosters and, you know, endorsements and, uh, you know, college sports is a huge money-making endeavor. Uh, it brings money not just to the sport itself, but to the other sports and also to the college itself. So it was a place of schmoozing for many people. And that's why they built that giant Coliseum-esque <laughs> stadium, you know, to have this sort of luxurious environment in which to get more money. Jordan Jefferson of Denver reflects a bit on the humor in this question. Some sections of your book Jordan says, are quite darkly funny. How do you approach including humor in this incredibly serious story? I don't know if I approached it. I I think humor is a coping mechanism, and I think that's something our minds often do. When things are so ridiculous, we see the ridiculousness of it, and we try, and we laugh. And that is um, why sometimes when faced with violence, people laugh. There are a lot of for example, uh, survivors of sexual assault who have lost their cases because after they were attacked, they were laughing because they couldn't believe that this happened to them. It was just so surreal. Uh, But I think it's something that happens, responding with humor to perceived danger, to pain, to many things. Daniel Bedell, I hope, is invoking humor in this next question. Daniel's in Golden. Erica, you talk a lot about martial arts training. You're, you're a black belt? Is that yes. right? Yes, yeah. yeah. Explain how you would attack or beat Ryan in a fight. <laughs> I would never fight Ryan. You, you would unless win. Unless he provoked me, and then I yeah. would totally beat Ryan. I like to battle with my mind, rather. <laughs> Do you think that the martial arts training was about taking back power? Definitely. And it, but it, it kind of went a little bit beyond that for me, too. I really like the strategy of it. And there's a point with martial arts where you, you sort of know enough to de- defend yourself in most circumstances. Now, you can't control everything. You can't control really anything. And um, size does matter. And I, I don't want to say that you'll ever be you know, safe, really, if just from knowing a few things. But there's a point where, uh, with martial arts, you start feeling the other person out, and you start sort of 
communicating in this physical way. And I think it really was part of the other piece with the PI work where I, you know, I wanted to read people's bodies. I wanted to read how, how people presented themselves and be able to vibe them a little bit. So I think that was, that was definitely a piece of it. Erica Krause, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much, Ryan. This is so much fun. Thank you. Author Erica Krauss speaking with me at LitFest in Denver. We read her new book, Tell Me Everything for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. Thanks to Lighthouse Writers Workshop for hosting us. And we'll announce our next book pick soon. Be right back with a young woman who was told she had a disease, only to find out it was a gift. This is CPR News. Philanthropic gifts help ensure that authentic, independent journalism remains freely accessible to people all over Colorado. Make an impact by recommending a gift to CPR through your donor-advised fund or family foundation. Learn more at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Jasmine, do you remember your first spot? I do. You do? Yeah, it was a little guy on my leg and then it kind of started to expand and morph and become its own thing around my body. Did you know what it was at first? No, I didn't. Honestly, I I kind of brushed it off and then went to a dermatologist who confirmed it was vitiligo and then I actually started to go through the process of trying to repigment and wanting to change myself into someone I'm not meant to be anymore. So like vitiligo has been just like the most bizarre but beautiful blessing in disguise. So this is Jasmine Abana Colgan, Denver model and artist and founder of the advocacy group Tough Skin, and she has vitiligo. So this is an autoimmune condition that lightens her skin. Colgan also has a message ahead of World Vitiligo Day, which is Saturday. And Jasmine, before we hear that message, you mentioned repigmentation. That was like the initial response from the medical community. Yeah. I gather there are people who want repigmentation so that their skin looks more consistent. Correct. You did not have that desire? I did it for a certain couple of years, I think, you know, like when I was first taking my first initial steps, repigment is to like develop more skin pigment or melanin that you know, like turns back into like the original color from the depigmentation. And I'll just say you're biracial. Yes. And your skin naturally was darker. Yes. And became lighter as a result, also naturally, (laughs) of vitiligo. Yeah. And so I I suppose you would meet healthcare workers who said, hey, we have ways of re-darkening that skin. Actually, the only treatment option that is a like FDA approved is a topical cream that will depigment your skin. So it'll turn you white, but it won't repigment your skin. So um, there are other treatments that so are. Just to be clear, that treatment would have made you more white. Yes. So the idea there wasn't to make the white skin darker, it was to make the existing dark skin lighter. Yes, which is interesting. And it's kind of like neocolonialism in a sense because. Historically, there was like bleaching creams for people of color, black people in particular, to somewhat be passing. Right. This this was for folks not even with vitiligo, Correct. just to lighten their skin yeah. and increase their standing in a racist society. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, okay, so in the 1700s, there was this beautiful woman. Her name is Mary Sabina. And she was 
actually born with spots. So there's a difference between being born with spots, which is called human piebaldism, and developing spots, which is called vitiligo. Mm. So for the instance of like Mary Sabina, her parents were stolen from Africa and they were forced onto a slave ship. And when she was born in Colombia on a plantation, the priest or the pastor like from the church right next door said that this is the most beautiful person that he's ever seen a work of art from god and she was painted from her youth up until the day that she died people painted these like intricate detailed paintings of her that are empowering versus after this time frame there started to become more stigma attached to depigmented skin so some people that would be for instance born with human piebaldism were showcased in freak shows then there was also people with vitiligo who were getting the power of white if that makes sense so people didn't want black people to have that kind of power because it actually took away from their ability to be a slave I mean, it's interesting to talk about representation in mm-hmm. a way, because that's what you're getting at. You've done modeling for Crocs, Verizon, Starbucks, an edibles company called Wana. The other day, I saw a male model with Vitiligo doing a spread, I think, for Nike Oh, cool! on Facebook. Do you remember the first time you saw someone else, like maybe in mainstream media, with Vitiligo? Yeah, I did. Uh, well, I mean... Most people don't realize Michael Jackson has vitiligo or had vitiligo. Or, um, although he might be the most famous vitiligan. Yeah. I mean, now there's Chantelle Winnie, who's, you know, like a fashion model who is from Canada. She was in America's Next Top Model. And now she's kind of like a face for vitiligo in the fashion world. Here's actually a short clip of her speaking. As I got older, I, you know, kind of built the confidence to tell my mom that that's not something that I like. I don't enjoy putting on makeup to cover up my skin. It's not fun, you know. It, it's not something that I see my friends having to do, so I don't feel like I should have to do it either. I think that was really empowering when I was first developing vitiligo to see her as somebody who was really embracing herself. And she's had vitiligo since she was a kid. Mm. Having this person who you know, like was able to create a positive light around a skin condition that most people shy away from or they'll order their groceries, for instance, online so that they don't have to go outside or they'll put their makeup on like for four hours before they even go outside. You become a slave to your skin. And one thing about tough skin is like we try to help people find communities within their area. One of my new partners, she's actually um, has alopecia And she talked about her first spot, like when her first spot of hair came off. And Mm. so like there's translation between skin conditions, for instance, like how, you know, tough skin was originally for vitiligans, but it becomes this empowering movement for people with a variety of skin conditions. You know, the effects of vitiligo are not just cosmetic. So there is an increased risk of other autoimmune disorders associated with it. Have you experienced any of those? I get my blood test once a year-ish um, just to kind of check because, like, diabetes runs in my family on my, my dad's side. My mom has um, Crohn's disease. But I haven't experienced anything. I thought that I had developed, like, psoriasis because I had, like, this itching on my back. But it was just dry skin from, like, the winter. Colorado so dry. I, I know that <laughs> feeling. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that that has not manifested. Me too. Um, how has your skin changed? Since that first spot? I started to find out that I can actually control my skin. I do that through tattoos. And the tattooing is like, I would go back every six months, they would outline it. And then 
within those six months, because of the trauma from the needle, my skin would depigment in like about a millimeter every six months. So you were tracing the lines of the vitiligo with tattoos, but then finding that that also influenced the shapes. Yes, absolutely. And then even one of the tattoo artists, she actually even did a tattoo on my shoulder with just water and that depigmented in a design. It was just like so intricate how she like pressed the needle against my skin and then within four months, my skin started to depigment in these designs. I, this is the artist in you. Of course. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> How is it to have both dark and light skin and be biracial? I think we kind of left off on this conversation in 2017. And I didn't know how to address it then. And then all of this like BLM movement started to happen. Uh-huh. And, you know, I've become part of the vitiligan race in a sense. You know, like I've really learned to help define the fact that, you know, like it's a skin condition. It's not a skin disease. It can be considered a disease depending on how you look at it, how you perceive it. I hear you saying not necessarily to avoid treatment or the medical community, but to shift the thinking and not to see it purely through a pathological lens. Yeah. And that was a journey for you. Yeah. There's a variety of treatments that you're able to endure it's your choice, you know, like it's your journey. However, just understand that some of these treatments may be invasive. And aside from a pathological perspective, it's also very artistic, you know, like you have these beautiful ways that your skin looks like clouds, or sometimes I actually had one that looked like a skull, or (laughs) yeah, it's kind of cool. Or it's like cloud watching where you're going, what do I see in the sky today? (laughs) What message would you have for healthcare providers who see patients Uh, perhaps new patients with vitiligo, what would you impart to them? I would suggest just trying to be as compassionate as possible. Like, what if you were in the same shoes? Would you want to hear that you have a a disease? Would you want to hear that, like, the skin that you're trying to accept and embrace is something that is an illness? You know, like, it's not terminal. It, It doesn't make you sickly. It doesn't make you ill. It actually makes you really unique. And to have, like, that confirmation from somebody who is studying this condition versus like right away let me tell you how I can treat you let me show you how Mm. I can fix you those terms right there let me tell you how I can fix you and treat you those are two different things that really are negative and you don't think about it because you're coming from a textbook standpoint versus a humane standpoint understanding like here are your options options is the word yeah I think so Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much. Denver model and artist Jasmine Abena Colgan, founder of Tough Skin. See a rundown of her events Saturday for World Vitiligo Day, including fashion shows and dances, on Instagram at tough.skin. And that is Colorado Matters, with special thanks to Pedro Lumbrano, Pete Kramer, Brittany Wurgis, and Carla Jimenez. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Thanks for spending time with us.